turn for our scripture reading this morning to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, taking up the reading at verse 29, reading through to the end of the chapter. John 1, verse 29, through to verse 51. Let us hear God's word. The next day, John, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Lord bless to us this reading of his word. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege that we had of hearing your word read to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you'll be with Dr. Tim as he brings the message to us. Give him your words to speak, that we will hear your message for our hearts this morning. And Lord, as we see in this passage, everyone told someone else about Jesus. We pray that you'll help us to do the same, to lead others to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And a slight change to the bulletin, the title of our sermon is Come and See the Spirit of Outreach. Well, we've asked of late, uh, how are we going to see this land we love recovered? And the question that comes to mind is that of David in Psalm 11. If the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And one of the things that I sought to do two weeks ago and now again this morning is to outline some of the things that we can do as the people of God, as a gift and as a service and a ministry to this land that no one else in the land can do. And I put it to you that there are three things we ought to major upon. First of all, the preaching of God's word, preaching it biblically, evangelistically, and prophetically, by which I mean applied to the times in which we live. And we are blessed here in this congregation to have that sort of preaching, preaching that is rooted in the Word of God, preaching that we desire to see applied to the lost, and preaching which is applied to the times in which we live. And it's our privilege, and it is a privilege, but it's also our responsibility to give attention to the preaching of the Word. And then the second thing we have seen that we can do, the second P, is to plead God's power. And I have been urging us, and I'm not alone in this, to balance out maintenance prayers, prayers for one another, which is very important within the context of a church family, with frontline prayers, praying that God's kingdom would come in this land, that many, many people would come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and that when God moves in revival, one of the consistent characteristics of a revival of God's people is that we come together to pray that God would display his glory and his greatness in our day, and that he would display that glory and greatness in many, many coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are impacted by our Western individualism, but we need to remember the teaching of Scripture. That One of the things that brings us together is that each of us is made in the image of God. And another thing that brings us together is the fact that through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a communion or a fellowship of the saints has been forged. And one of the greatest outlets for the exhibition of the communion of the saints is the coming together in joint prayer, that God would visit us in his mercy and his grace afresh. And the third P then would be promote God's gospel. It is only going to be seismic conversions to Christ that is going to change America around. And it's only going to be seismic conversions which are going to change the Western nations around and other nations of the world. I mentioned to you last time what God is able to do very quickly as he brought 100,000 people to faith in Jesus Christ in a mere 10 months in Wales in 1904, 1905. 
And it is for us to believe, trusting to a great God, that he is well able to do that again. I've been editing this week a chapter for a book that four of us are writing on four great awakenings in America, where time and again God has come to the nation, sometimes in conditions seemingly worse than what we find today. And yet he has rent the heavens, he has come down, he has poured out of his Holy Spirit. And countless numbers in very quick succession have come from death to life. And through the changing of hearts, the land has been turned back to God. And I do believe that that is the greatest hope we have for America today, the United Kingdom also, and of other lands. And so we are asking God, first of all, to begin with this church, to awaken us to our responsibilities, our privileges, that we may be ablaze to see God glorify his name in our day. My mind goes back to Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel gathered around the mount. Say to Moses, we have seen this day God's glory and his greatness. And I do believe that if God moves in our day, then we will say the same. That God, who displays his glory every day, all day through the creation, will show more of his glory as he brings countless numbers to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are focusing this morning then on this third P, promoting God's gospel. And as we focus on outreach then, we turn to the earliest days of Jesus' ministry. And as we pick up the reading here at verse 29 of John 1, we find that we've already been given the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses. And then from verse 18 to 28, John, the author of the gospel, has introduced us to the ministry of John the Baptist. Then from verse 29, where we pick it up, we are told what happens on three successive days of this earliest phase of our Lord's ministry. Notice Verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. And on each of these repetitions of the phrase, the next day, hangs an important point with regard to our reaching out with the gospel. So this morning I want to bring to you three lessons about outreach. And the first is this, verses 29 through 34, the motivation for our outreach. So by the time we catch up with John the Baptist in verse 29, two things have happened. John has been preaching powerfully, and his ministry has caught the attention of the authorities, and they are asking, who is this fellow, this strange-looking fellow out in the wilderness? He's eating locusts and wild honey. He's dressed in camel's hair. Who is he? And what right and what authority does he have to call the people to repentance and then to baptize them with a baptism for repentance? And the second thing that has happened is that on one of these occasions in which John is baptizing, his cousin comes along and he baptizes him. And as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, he discovers, evidently they hadn't spent much time together, he discovers that is none other than Jesus who is identified by God as the Messiah. Remember how when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, 
Mary walks in through the door. And the babe, who was the babe? John the Baptist, leapt in the womb as the mother of our Lord comes into the home to visit with Elizabeth. And now here we are 30 years later, and it is John now born, now in adulthood himself, now as the older cousin who has already embarked upon his ministry, who is so enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus we read verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, notice then from these following verses, three motivations for reaching out with the gospel. And the first is the man. Who is this man? Well, says John, he doesn't describe him as a prophet, priest, and king. Those three parts to the Messiahship of Jesus. Rather, he describes himself as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. You say, he's not saying, well, you see, that's just my cousin. We have some family connections going back 30 years. He's just my cousin. No, no. He stands back from that family relationship and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, why does he describe him as the Lamb of God? Well, I put it to you that there's an historical reason. He would have known that according to the Old Testament, not any lamb could be sacrificed, but one that was young, one that was spotless. And here comes Jesus in the prime of his life. He's young, 30 years of age. But they also quickly get a sense from Jesus that he's no ordinary 30-year-old. There's a sense of purity. There's a sense of spotlessness about him. And John, the author of this gospel, has already testified back in the prologue, verse 14, of his own experience. And he's probably here with John the Baptist, at least, later in the passage. And this is what he says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is not only looking physically young, but there's something extraordinary about him. That he's not only full of grace, he's full of truth. He has a balance about him, and he has a fullness of grace and truth about him, which was unique to him. But there's a spiritual reason also why John describes him as the Lamb of God. Think about the ministry of John the Baptist. It was given to him to preach repentance to the people in readiness for the coming of the Messiah. This was the way they were to prepare for the Messiah coming, to get right with God, to repent of their sins, and having repented of their sins, to submit to this baptism of repentance. But you know, and I know, that when we preach a doctrine of repentance, it's not necessarily a pleasant experience. We have to pull off the facade. We have to look within. We have to consider our thoughts in the light of God's holiness. We have to consider our words in the light of God's holiness, our actions in the light of God's holiness, the things we do that we shouldn't do, and the things that we haven't done that we should have done. And so having preached repentance to the people and been baptizing them with this baptism of repentance, John says to them a wonderful, comforting message. Behold, look at him, the Lamb of God. And this is the spirit of our outreach too. 
It's not to come to the society in which we live simply with a message of repentance. Yes, that is needed. One of the reasons why the gospel is not having the impact upon American society as it could do or should do is because preachers are not preaching repentance as they could be and should be. But we don't stop with repentance, otherwise we simply become pharisaical, going tut, 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 tut. Look at the lesbian gay community, tut, 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 tut. Look at those rioters, tut, 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 tut. No, we come and say, there is such a thing as the law of God. It's inscribed upon every heart. And it's written in the word of God. And there is a need for widespread repentance in our day. But the spirit of outreach doesn't stop there. It goes on to talk about the Lamb of God. Because when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, he's saying, in effect, behold, there's your hope. And so it is for us when we reach out. It's not enough to say, well, you see, we're from a conservative portion of the Christian church, a conservative portion of society. We really don't approve of anything you're doing. We have to go beyond that and say, behold, look at Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. And so there's the man. And then secondly, there's the message, the second half of verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. What does John say? Who takes away the sin of the world. Now within this short clause, we find three massive truths which are relevant to outreach. First of all, the nature of the atonement. This Lamb of God takes away sin. And how is he going to do it? Well, you see, he's going to go in three years to the cross, and he's going to die in our place. And by God's plan, Christ's death has two effects. It has a Godward effect. God, who ordained that his son should die upon the cross, ordained that his son, by his death, should have an impact upon God. What is that impact? We call it propitiation, whereby God in his righteousness pours forth his anger against his son, and his son absorbs that anger even unto the death of the cross. And as the father's righteous anger is exhausted upon the son, so there is a change of attitude within the father as he responds to the death of the son. That's propitiation. But as Jesus dies upon the cross and as his blood, even unto death, begins to be shed, there is a manward effect of the cross. And it's an effect upon us because the shed blood of the Lord Jesus is what covers our sins as God's people entirely. It's what we call expiation. And so the death of Christ, this one historical event at the heart of history, has an impact upon God by God's ordination, and has an impact upon God's people by covering their sins. That's the nature of the atonement. Secondly, about the message, the extent of the atonement. John comes, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's speaking after thousands of years of God meeting with the Hebrews or the Jews specifically. And now he says, this wonderful gospel of hope is not simply for those who are Jews, but for those who are Gentiles also. John is not saying that this Lamb of God is going to go to the cross and die for every single person in human history. 
but he dies for all without distinction. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. So we do not do in our outreach what is often done and say, Christ has died for you. We don't know that. But what we say is this, Christ is dead for you. That nothing more is required for the forgiveness of your sins or mine than the fact is we have a Messiah who has died. And nothing more needs to be added to his atoning death for your salvation than has already been accomplished by his death. It's only as people put their trust in the Lord Jesus that we have a right to say to them, Christ has died for you. In the meantime, we come with this wonderful message of hope saying, in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who was dead for you. And because he has done it all, all you need do in inverted commas is rest in him. And then with regard to the message, also the application of the atonement. Jump down for a moment to verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so then it is with the baptism with the Holy Spirit that we are granted the gifts of faith and repentance and are enabled to take hold of this Christ who has died and embrace him as our Savior and say, this Savior and none other is mine. Now, dear ones, this morning, we do not need an exhaustive knowledge of the gospel. I don't want you to go away thinking that I cannot reach out to my neighbor because I'm not a theologian. But I will say this that every Christian truly born again of the Spirit of God is a theologian. What is theology? It is the study of God. And what are we doing here if we're not studying about God? And what are we going to say to our neighbors if we switch off every Sunday and say, well, I'm just going through the rituals? No. Why does Pastor Bob expound the Scriptures every Sunday so that we can go out of this place equipped by the ministry of the word to speak about the man, the Lamb of God, to speak about the message, an atonement for sin, and to say that as people believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as they turn from their sins unto God, they too may know the forgiveness of sins. And so I commend to you the study of the person and work of Christ. And then the third motivation, verse 30. John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Recall that John is at least six months older than Jesus. He has Jerusalem and Judea going out to hear him in the desert. And now he shows that it takes self-denial to reach out with the gospel. So while he is older than Jesus, he nevertheless says that Jesus was before him. He understands then the person of Christ. But I put it to us this morning that we will not be effective reaching out with the gospel until we have this similar self-denial of John the Baptist. The larger Christ looms within us, the more we are likely to speak of him. 
If we are large in our own estimation, the less likely we are to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why John comes in verse 34. I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Why was John the Baptist prepared to be a social oddball? Because Christ was ranking as highest in his estimation. And what it produced in him was a carelessness about what people thought about him. And I put it to us, dear brothers and sisters, that this is exactly what we need. We need to forget about our reputations as Christians. They're going down the swanee. It was a day in which Christians were respected in the land. That's no longer the case. And we have to make a conscious decision in our own lives. And I believe this is why some of the churches are emptying out, because people don't want to make this decision. Am I all in with Christ or am I not? Am I prepared to put my reputation on the line for Christ or am I not? Who's looming largest in my thinking? Is it me seeking to draw the perks of Christianity without the cost? Or is it Christ who is worthy of my all? In love with him, I'm prepared to allow my reputation to die on the vine. Listen to Charles Wesley. It's him, Jesus, the name high over all. Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. These then are our three motivations for outreach. The man, the message, the mortification, dying to self. Well, secondly, verses 35 to 42, we come on to the inspiration influencing outreach. If our motivation explains why we personally reach out, our inspiration speaks of the three factors which enable us to influence others that they also reach out. And the first is our filling with God's Spirit, verses 35 to 36. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples with John the Baptist are likely helpers administering the baptisms. One was Andrew, we know that from verse 40, and the other was likely John, the author of this gospel, because he knows so much of what is going on here. And again, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus, so verbalizes his enthrallment to Jesus that the diminution of John the Baptist's influence wanes as these men, inspired by John the Baptist, stop following John the Baptist and no go and start following Jesus. Well, how do we explain this influence that John the Baptist had? Well, our minds go back to, to what is said of him before he was born, that he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. That is why he could leap in Elizabeth's womb as he hears Mary coming into the house. And now he's leaping physically and visibly as he now knows who the Messiah is. So he influences then Andrew and John to go and follow Christ. And he does so because the spirit with whom he is filled so points us to Christ and empowers us to come to Christ. 
that having done so himself, with great enthrallment, with great enthusiasm, he now impacts these two disciples of his. Brothers and sisters, since the day of Pentecost, all those coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We don't need to go seeking a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a wonderful privilege we have, though, to go on seeking a fresh filling and refilling with the Spirit. And as we do so, so our powers of outreach will improve, will extend. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 19th century reflected back on the ministry of John Bunyan from the 17th century, and this is what he said. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible, namely Christ, flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. And so it ought to be with us. And so we come to God and we say, if we are filled with the Spirit who loves to fill us with the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, then prick our veins and out should come Christ. Prick our conversation and out should come Christ. Prick our thinking and out should come Christ. Prick our actions and out should come Christ. You see, so it's not uh, the sense this morning that, as I mentioned two weeks ago, that we're going to put people through a vice and say, now, listen, you must outreach. You must reach out. And you must do this, you must do that, you must do the other. But there's a sense in which for the believer that outreach is the most natural thing we do. Because being filled with the spirit of the now glorified Christ, you prick a Christian and out comes Christ. Remember what David says in Psalm 39, as I was musing, the fire burned. And it's true for us, as we are musing upon the person of Christ, as we are musing upon the work of Christ, so we die to self, project Christ. And in a sense, we don't need any evangelistic strategy. It happens. We need the filling of the Spirit for that to happen. The second thing, that influences others to outreach is our experience of God's Son, verses 37 to 39. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them and following and said to them, Why are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. We're not now thinking of how John inspired, but we're thinking on how his disciples went on to inspire others. And they come to Jesus as he turns around and sees them following. Jesus doesn't say, who are you seeking? He doesn't put words in their mouth. He says, what are you seeking? And so they want to find out who is this Jesus. And so they say, you know, where, where are you staying? In other words, can we get alongside you? Can we have time with you? Can we experience you as the Messiah, the Son of God? And so Jesus invites them into his fellowship. And there he explains to them, doubtless, how he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he invites them into his lodging in verse 39, likely 10 a.m. in the morning, according to the Roman timing. 
While we are not told what they discussed, we do get some points. First of all, from Andrew's invitation to Peter, verse 41. We have found the Messiah. And likely the conversation between Andrew, Peter, and Philip, verses 44 to 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So I want to say to you this morning that we have been hearing on Sunday nights about the importance of the Word of God, and that's very true. And I don't want to take from that. But I do want to add to it and say that in our theology, we hold as distinct but inseparable the Word on the one hand and the Spirit on the other. We don't go out from these doors as bookworms. Yes, we should know the Bible increasingly, but we go out as those who have experienced the living Christ so that we can say, listen, this is what the Bible says for sure, but this is my testimony of the truth of the Word of God as it came to me by the power of the Spirit. We say in the words of the hymnist, my faith has found a resting place. It wasn't in a chapter and a verse, although God may have used that. It was in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. George Whitfield mentioned him last time, whose statue has just been taken down by the University of Pennsylvania. Said we should always preach a felt Christ. And it also goes for outreach. We should always reach out with a felt Christ. Not simply one we read of in the pages of the Bible, but one who we know resides within us by the Spirit. And that's what gives our outreach authority. And so thirdly, we inspire others by our cooperation in God's purposes, verses 40 to 42. God does not need us. Yet in his condescension, he involves us in calling others to himself. When then Andrew goes out from Jesus, he finds his brother and he tells him about the Messiah. And he brings Peter to Jesus. Why does he bring Peter to Jesus? Because he has every confidence in Jesus. And Peter's rewarded. Jesus knows him already. Jesus prophesies over him. And so I'm asking then, since we are co-workers with Jesus Christ, is this our self-conscious praying as we go into each day? God, you have an elect people in Marne. You have an elect people in Coopersville. You have an elect people in Grand Rapids Northwest who you are going to bring to yourself. And you could bring them to yourself in a moment without any use of your people whatsoever. And yet, in your condescension to your people, you've brought us not only into the knowledge of Christ, but into the service of Christ. We are co-workers with Jesus Christ. I am at your disposal. Lead me as you will. And open my heart, open my tongue, that I may speak of Christ. Remember how Kate Wilkinson's hymn ends? May his beauty rest upon me as I seek 
the loss to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. You know, you hear some unusual reasons why we cannot do what we are privileged to do as Christians. Well, I, I don't pray with others because it's me and my relationship to God. I don't pray with others because I don't want to glorify my own name. I don't reach out with the gospel because I don't want to become egotistical about it. Listen to Kate Wilkinson. As I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. What's Kate Wilkinson saying? She's saying, I've shrunk in my own estimation. He has become large in my own estimation, so that when I speak the name of Christ, as his beauty rests upon me, they forget the channel because they're conscious of an authority coming through me. But by a speak of the gospel, and it's about him, and it's not about me. And so thirdly then, more briefly, we come to the justification for our outreach, verses 43 to 51. Three warrants for outreach. The first is that outreach is clearly God's will. How do we know that? Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. In other words, just because Andrew has gone out telling Peter about finding the Messiah, it doesn't mean to say Jesus says, well, it's just up to my new disciples to do that. Rather, he intends to go to the north of the country, sees Philip, says, follow me. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is putting his stamp of approval upon what Andrew has done. And I say to us that God puts his stamp of approval on congregations that live for those who are not yet members of the church. It's a distortion of our reformed understanding of Scripture to say that we need not reach out. God is sovereign in whom he saves, yet he's committed to us a responsibility to reach out with the gospel. I commend to your attention a book by Arby Kuyper, God-Centered Evangelism. I commend to your attention a famous book by J.I. Packer, who died this week, Evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Don't tell me. Tell anybody else either. It's an embarrassment. That we're reformed. We don't reach out. Some of the greatest reformed Christians since the Reformation have been those who precisely have reached out. Because they believe that God, having ordained the people who will be saved, went with freedom into their pulpits and into society, simply preached the man, preached the message, held him high, and Jesus did what he said he would do. He would draw all sorts of men and women to himself. Second warrant, outreach is God's means, verses 44 to 46. God has given us a metaphor. He calls Philip. Where does Philip come from? Bethsaida, the same town as Andrew and Peter. What does Bethsaida mean? House of fishing. And now he's made a fisherman of men. And he's given him a manual. What is the manual? The Bible. It's a rescue manual, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The Bible is our rescue manual. 
tells us how we may be saved. And he's given us a mantra. Let's not complicate outreach. It's pretty simple. And it's this, come and see. Come and see. Now, we, in our culture, want to be successful. We say, well, I'm not going to reach out unless I know that they will come to faith in Christ because if they don't come to faith in Christ, I'm going to have egg on my face. No, you're not at all. To us belongs the responsibility of being faithful. To God, the responsibility of our success. And we just simply say, come and see. I have great confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is well able to save you to the uttermost. And if they're not saved, then that's God's responsibility. But mine is to bring them, to show them, Jesus, that they may know the Lamb of God, that they may know that he takes away the sins of the world. It's not my responsibility what they do with that. My responsibility is to say, come, come and see. Then the third warrant, outreach is God's opportunity, verses 47 to 51. In reaching out, our responsibility, as I've said, is not to be successful, but to be faithful. So once Nathanael then comes to Jesus, it's over to the Lord. And what does Jesus do? Verses 47 to 49, he destroys his cynicism. This man has said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus says, verse 47, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He says, well, at least you got this going for you, Nathanael. You're honest with yourself. You're cynical about the scriptures. And after he spoke to Nathanael, what does Nathanael say? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, he knocks down his cynicism. And having done so, he then leaves him with the gospel. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You remember the story, Genesis 28, what happened at Luz, renamed Bethel, the house of God. Jacob is on the run. He sees this dream and he sees the angels ascending and descending upon this ladder, which was on the foot of the earth, reaching up into heaven. It was a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ as mediator. That Jesus Christ has come from God right from the very throne room of heaven, right down to earth itself. And because he is like a ladder standing on earth, he is able to get us from earth to heaven. And so Jesus is saying here to Nathaniel, listen, this is the wonderful thing. You come to me as a cynic. I saw you under the tree. I can read your thoughts. I know you through and through. But as you've come to me, let me tell you something you're going to know far greater things than the fact that I am omniscient and know you through and through. You're going to know me as a mediator who represents God before you and you before God. And through me, the ladder between earth and heaven, you're going to see the great, rich grace of God in the gospel that I've come to proclaim and come to procure. We cannot, brothers and sisters, say that everyone we bring September the 12th will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, to see how many people are first invited to a venue in which the gospel is proclaimed. And bit by bit, as they're introduced to Jesus, 
their cynicism is reduced as they are presented with the glory of the Son of God. And there may well be here this morning some who can testify and say, I was that person. I wasn't born and brought up in the church. But somebody spoke to me. They went out on a limb. They said, when you come to this, when you come to that, I began to see something of the reflection of Christ's grace and truth in them. I began to ask questions. And it's as if God said to me, you haven't seen anything yet. And for us as the people of God, we still have not seen so much yet. I has not seen what God has prepared for those who love him. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, let us pray for a heart for the lost, openings to speak to the lost, and the courage and the wisdom to bring them to Christ.